0: As the children head out, you can, you can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. It's on page 842 in your pew Bible. If you have a sermon guidebook, we're on page 34 of that this week. And before I pray for us, I want to tell you that I have a very definite aim in this sermon. God may accomplish myriad things, but I have one definite aim. I figured I should share it with you so you'll know if it happens to you. And that is to awaken your appetite for holiness. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to this church. And on this All Saints Day, we thank you for all those who died so that we could have your word. There are those in our own Anglican tradition, Lord, we think of latmer and ridley and cranmer and there are many others missionaries lord who have gone all across the world we honor them today lord by how we honor your word it is in your name we pray amen amen, amen. do you think that our problems and we have problems do you think our problems lie mainly around us or inside of us? Do you think that your problems are mainly around you, or do you think that they're ultimately inside of you? Do you think that fixing a nation or a community or a family is a matter of external regulations? Or do you think it requires something else? All societies across all times have needed to make and enforce law. Laws are meant to be good. They hold back evil. They guide us when they're used well towards harmony and flourishing. And in a town like Washington, D.C., we exert great energy and time in making and upholding law. But it's worth asking, at least every now and then, about the ultimate power of law. It's worth asking whether or not our problems lie in legislation or ultimately somewhere else. I mean, why, after so many attempts, across so much time, in so many different continents and countries, why do people who are governed by laws, even good laws, not show greater moral transformation? Why, as we become technological giants, do we remain moral dwarfs? Why, as we become legislative experts, can we not legislate becoming good? In our passage today from Mark 7, Jesus is drawn into a heated debate about law. It's a discussion that moves from the technicalities of practice to the depths of good and evil. Jesus doesn't throw away our need for the law in this passage, nor does Jesus affirm that the law is the ultimate solution to our problems. Rather, he warns us against misuses of the law, and then he transforms our entire relationship to it. So I want to walk us through this long 23-verse passage. And I want to help us see a few of these warnings about misuses of the law. And then finally see how Jesus transforms our relationship to it. So some misuses of the law. This is how the passage opens. Verses 1-13 through 13 find... Pharisees and scribes having gathered around Jesus to interrogate him about his disciples' misuse of laws. Verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? They've noticed the disciples eating. They may very well be eating the leftover loaves from the miracle of feeding the 5,000. They see them eating, but they haven't gone through the proper ritual of washing their hands. So The disciples asked Jesus, what is this about? Now, the Old Testament law, it never requires hand-washing before all meals. It does call for thanksgiving, but not hand-washing. But in, in Jesus' day, another body of legislation had developed, often called the oral law, Here it's called the traditions of the elders. You see that in verse 5. Sometimes it's called the traditions of men. These were rules that had developed alongside the written word of God. So alongside the Old Testament... With its different regulations, a body of laws had developed that was kept orally and passed on. Now, this law was mainly meant to help people know how to apply the written law. So, you have commandments that seem very simple, like the fourth commandment honor the Sabbath, do not work on it. And then people would ask, well, what counts as work? Can I pick up sticks for a fire? Can I milk the cow? Can I make my bed? And so the oral law was developed by rabbis and religious teachers to help specify its application. It's codified, it's kept for us now in what's called the Mishnah. However, as can happen with human beings, when we start adding to God's law, we often end up subtracting from it. And this is Jesus' response to the Pharisees. That in keeping human traditions, this is what he calls them, the traditions of men, they're actually choking divine purposes. So verse 8, this is the main point of the first half of our section. This is 1 through 13. This is Jesus' driving point. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, he repeats it you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Verse 13, you make void the word of God by your tradition. You leave the commandment, you reject the commandment, and you make it void, how? By keeping your man-made, human-made laws. In verse 6, Jesus said that Isaiah prophesied about this and that those who do this are called hypocrites. Verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, Now, Jesus gets into a specific example. I mean, he's having an argument here, debate, and he gets into an example. He said, look, I'm telling you that you uphold human tradition and by doing so, you actually nullify God's purposes. Let me give you an example. So verse 10 through 12, he brings up this strange example about Corban. Verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and mother and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever would have been gained from me as Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition. Jesus is getting into the technicalities here. So Corban, this word, it means given to God. So here is the practice that was happening. People could call something Corban. This would be like if you had a property and you said, Honey, this here, this is given to God. We are only using it for the church. And then you had a, an elderly parent get sick, and they really needed help with medical bills. And, and they said, could you maybe let us live in that property? And you say, sorry, Mom and Dad, we gave it to God. We can't use it to help you. Now, at first, the idea of giving something to God seems virtuous, Right? But subtly, it was being leveraged to get out of having to obey God's deeper desire, which is that you would care for your family. This, the fifth commandment, which we read in Exodus, to honor your father and mother, it wasn't just about teenage years. It applied to grown-up adults and how they cared for aging parents, especially in the ancient world. And so for whatever reason, uh, adult child may decide, I don't want to support my in-laws with my hard-earned harvest. Corbin, it's given to God. Therefore, I really can't, honey, I can't use it. I've given it to God. Now, the priest, they didn't mind this because something being dedicated to God was synonymous with being dedicated to the temple. So this furthered the temple's treasury. And so Jesus is saying, look, essentially he's saying this, you are using virtue to bless vice. You are using so-called morality to be immoral. You are holding human traditions that are covering human vice. You make void the commands of God in order to follow the traditions of men. So this is the first misuse of the law. It's when we It's when we laud and honor and keep a human tradition even while it's covering over a very real vice. Do we do this today? My grandfathers, um, they come from what's been called the greatest generation. You know, it's the generation that lived and fought during the time of World War I and II. It's the generation that lived through the Great Depression. This generation was marked by heroism, loyalty. They raised their families. They went to church, and they worked hard. And many of them really are heroes, and we owe them a great deal. And this is a great tradition. But I can remember being in high school, sitting by my grandfather at a high school basketball game, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, when he leaned over and said something to me that was blatantly racist about someone. He grew up in the Baltimore, Washington area in the 30s and 40s. This was how he and his peers saw the world. And even while we honor the traditions of this greatest tradition, we dare not do it in such a way that we're afraid to lift up the hood and acknowledge that in some cases... These traditions are also covering of ice. Let me turn to the younger generation. You're sitting here going, Yup, they sure were racist back then. <laughs> Glad we're not like that. You've been called not the greatest generation, but the most awake generation. And you really have, you really have come a long way in understanding the importance of every human being in honoring people who look different from you or come from different places from you, you rightly have seen the importance of applying individual rights and individual freedoms liberally. But with this great tradition of individual rights, freedom for all, could it be that this human tradition is covering over oppression, towards the unborn in the name of individual rights? Could it be that this tradition in the name of expressive individualism is blessing immorality? Jesus is very clear to all of us. Every tradition you can think of, it's all blood-stained soil. He's saying, you have a fine way this is verse 9 of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. Don't throw out traditions, learn from them, but do not hold a human tradition in the place of divine law. That's the point of verses 1 through 13. Now, in verse 14, Jesus turns from responding to the religious leaders to speaking to the crowds. You can see this if you look at verse 14. And he called the people to him again. And he said to them, hear me, all of you. By the way, this is the only command in this section. Hear, hear me, Jesus says. Really understand. So now he's pulling people in a little bit closer, people who have been following him. And he points out in this section another misuse of the law. If if the first misuse was was holding human traditions in such a way that they cover human vice, this mistake could be called mistaking outward adherence for inward communion. It's what we call legalism or moralism. So from verses 15 through 23, Jesus explains that it is not what goes into a person that defiles him, but what comes out of him. And in getting into this topic, by the way, he's He's moving past these traditions of men into dealing with the written word of God. And the law of God in the Old Testament had dietary stipulations. It had all kinds of things about ceremonies, what to do when you go to the temple, how to eat. And Jesus is here saying something about that. He's saying that that although these laws were given to the Israelites to help keep them distinct from ungodly nations that they might have commingled with in such a way that would ultimately harm them. Jesus is saying that there's actually a problem with how you can go about keeping the law of God. And this is when we mistake outward adherence to God's law for inward communion with God. We call this legalism or moralism. So, how does this look for us? You know, I just think this is one of our natural defaults as human beings. It's it would be a case where we mistake church attendance, and church clothes, and saying the creed and tithing, for actual, vital living relationship with God. You ever notice this? You, you yourself, about yourself, maybe you can be a really good churchgoer and say all the right things, do all the right traditions, and then not, not really notice much change in yourself. You know, in a place like Washington, D.C., we can build churches around sound doctrine because we're heady people, right? We think hard. We're also performance-based, so we built churches around really good programs. But you ever notice that sometimes you can have beautiful gospel doctrine without any gospel culture? So let me ask members of the Falls Church Anglican. Are there places in your life where you are adhering to sound doctrine the law of God, but not really showing any of its effects? Might we sing of our Savior's mercy, but be unwilling to show it to others? And let me ask you who are culturally engaged, are are we speaking much of social change, but not showing much change of character? Do we speak outwardly for the rights of the oppressed, but remain cold or indifferent towards that person at work or school who might be a little socially awkward? Do they not deserve our love? So Jesus is leveling a second warning here in the second half of our passage. He's saying, don't think that external adherence to all the right doctrine and all the right law will necessarily affect inward change. Now... This doesn't mean Jesus is throwing out the law. In fact, the ongoing use of the law from the Bible is a pretty interesting topic for Christians. And we don't have time to get into the details today. But you could just say the moral essence of it continues to apply. He's not throwing away the law. But he is pushing us up against its limit. He's saying to us it doesn't affect deep enough change. I mean, if it did, why is it not working? It's not making people clean. The law is not making people clean. Rather, unclean people are making the law dirty. Neither human traditions nor legalism deal with a deeper problem. For that, we need to turn from our relationship to the law to our relationship with the lawgiver. And this is really where we have to make a hard pivot from misuses of the law to how we relate to the King who is the lawgiver. The word defilement or defile bookends our passage. You'll see it there at the beginning. It's in verse 2 and verse 6. It appears again in verse 23. This is very intentional. The disciples of Jesus are accused of eating with defiled hands, verse 2 and verse 6. Jesus, at the end of his teaching in verse 23, has explained this is what defiles a person. Now, the word defile, it it carries the idea of something being unclean or corrupted or polluted. And it speaks to a condition not outside of us, but within us. Now, we have almost no concept of this today in how we think about morality and right and wrong. We have no concept of inner defilement. Instead, our criteria for something being right or wrong is almost entirely external. Does it harm someone? Is it fair? Does it cause oppression? These are crucially important moral categories. The Bible teaches about them. But the Bible has an entirely other category that we have no understanding of today. And it's this category of clean or unclean, pure or impure. The Bible often speaks of people becoming stained, like on the inside and desperately needing to be washed. The Bible teaches that there are, there are ways to break the law, the law of God, which cause no obvious harm or oppression or inequality to anybody. In fact, they may look like they're helping people. But in fact, this infraction of the law is defiling us. It's corrupting us. You see, the Bible's vision of morality is about more than good behavior. It's about making people holy. Now, holiness is aligning our nature with God's nature. We don't realize it, but when we harbor resentment or envy or lust or hate... Even when they stay within and never burst without, they're inwardly corrupting us. You know, the classic example of this from from English literature is the story of, or excuse me, the picture of Dorian Gray um, by Oscar Wilde. Maybe you're familiar with the story. It's really brilliant. Dorian is a young, dashing man, and he comes to make a Faustian-like deal with the devil. Here's the deal. Dorian wants to dive into hedonism, enjoy all the pleasures his charms give him, but he doesn't want to age. He doesn't want it to ever go away, the fact that he has this beauty. So there's a life-size portrait painted of Dorian, and this is his deal. The portrait, not Dorian himself, will show all the signs of life, aging, strife, but Dorian will remain forever young and beautiful. And so he dives headlong into a guilt-free life of pleasure. No marks on the outside of aging, no stains from anything. But he's strangely drawn back to the portrait. He wants to see it. What's it look like? And over time, he recognizes that not only is his face in the portrait aging, but it's becoming uglier, darker, pockmarked. It looks sinister. He finally says to his friend, It's the face of my soul. Through some strange quickening of inner life, the leprosies of sin were slowly eating the portrait away. Near the very end of the novel, near the end of his life, Dorian, still appearing perfect and beautiful on the outside, is haunted on the inside, and we read, He felt a wild longing for the unstained purity of his boyhood, his rose-white boyhood. Our culture has no category for this, but our hearts know it's true. Don't you wanna be clean? Don't you wanna be one of those people for whom, when others are around you, they walk away feeling like they've been breathing fresh mountain air? Don't you wanna be pure? Don't you wanna be undefiled? Don't you wanna not be dirty? The law, especially the law of our culture, has no conception of this inner stain, nor does it have any ability to heal it. So Jesus turns to the heart of the problem by turning to the heart. You'll notice the word heart comes up three times in our passage, verse 6, verse 19, and verse 21. Picking up at verse 15, Jesus says there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. He lists 12 things now. We're going to unpack each one of them. Just kidding. (laughs) Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Verse 23. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The philosophers will ask, what is the origin of evil? The socially concerned will ask, what is the origin of evil? They'll point to systems. They'll point to some cosmic reality. Jesus answers the question here. It's not easy. What's the origin of evil? Verse 23, all these evil things come from within. You got to stand in front of the mirror and you got to say, What's wrong with the world? You are. You are. And guess what, friends? The law will never get in to set you free until that move happens. So, Christianity is a religion of the heart. First, and fundamentally, of course, it pays great attention to the external world. God made the world. It values how the world and its societies are ordered. But it knows that beneath constitutions, beneath legislative bodies, and beneath the rules of your family home lie human hearts. And while external laws can try to keep evil at bay, they cannot dispel evil from within. You know, I'll, I'll give you a little image for this, and then we'll get into how Jesus addresses the heart. Um, you think of um, washing dishes in a dishpan, right? A Dish bin, dish pan. You've got the dishes in there. You've got the water. There's no flowing water. And the dishes make the water dirty. And so you, you get to a point where you're like, well, I want to get the, the, the dishes more clean. So you just keep adding water into the dirty dishpan, right? But it, it doesn't change anything. It just spreads the germs around. This is what it's like giving more and more law to people who are corrupt on the inside. What we need instead is someone to drill through the rock of our soul and create there a spring of living water. Remember Yahweh in the Old Testament. Remember, he can bring forth water from a rock. We need not law from without. We need the very essence of righteousness bubbling up, bubbling up from within now let me show you how this happens. This happens when the true king, Jesus Christ, implants his law in your heart. I'll show you how this happens. Let me just give you three commands that the new king gives across Mark's gospel. You know Jesus' first command? you know what it is? It's in verse 15, chapter 1. Jesus' first command for his followers, repent. So to, to keep this command, you've got to do heart work. Repentance, repentance is not external reality. Repent means okay, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, like, like Superman, whip open my shirt, and I'm going to let you look at my heart, Lord, and I'm going to admit that there's failings and faults and weaknesses, and I'm going to say in humility, I'm really sorry. I mean, there's, there's a whole list of wrongs that have been done to me, Lord, but I'm going to set them over here, and I'm going to say, right now, I'm sorry. I have been wrong, and I need your mercy. Authentic repentance drills down into the wells of the heart. The second command Jesus gives is there in verse 15 of chapter 1. These are the king's commands. The second one, do you know it? Repent, believe. This means this is another act of the heart. If, if repentance is bending the knee of the heart, belief is the heart's little hand trembling, reaching out to take hold of the hand that is even reaching down to take hold of it. And, and belief is a constant trust. It's a surrendered life saying, Lord, I need you. I trust you. I'm going to live upon you and depend on you. The third command Jesus gives, it comes up several times, is simply sometimes articulated as follow. Follow me. This is the heart then saying, I have a new loyalty. I obey Jesus. I live a life of Of surrendered obedience to him. Now, this can all be summarized, friends, as the law of the king being mainly about being brought into a saving relationship with the lawgiver. And you see, what Jesus can do in this relationship with you is catharsis. That's a strange word, you know, it's in our passage. You see, in verse 19, there's this little aside, a parenthetical, and Mark simply says out of nowhere, by this, or thus, he declared all foods clean. You see, that's at the end of verse 19. That word clean, that word clean, it's crucial, and it, it, it sets us on a beeline for the cross. It's saying that Jesus can make things that aren't clean, clean, without the things doing anything. I mean, the food doesn't get its act together all of a sudden, right? The pork doesn't become not pork. Jesus just says it's clean. And that's what he can do for us. This word, this word that's translated as clean, from it we get the word catharsis. And it means to purge or purify or to cleanse. We use it to describe strong relief from pain or the cleansing from repressed emotions. And, and you see, all through church history people have have noticed two major themes about what Jesus does for us on the cross. And the first theme has to do with him dealing with guilt we have from sin. And you would think guilt, I mean, guilt's the main thing, right, because we're talking about law, breaking law, doing something that's illegal according to God's law. Well, you incur guilt. You have to pay a penalty. Jesus pays your penalty on the cross. Your guilt's forgiven. But the church fathers, through the reformers up to today, they noticed alongside the problem of guilt, there's another problem. If guilt's a legal problem, they said you also have a problem of defilement of corruption this is more like an organic term even a medical term you have a disease you need more than a legal fix for a disease you need a medicine so Jesus on the cross here's what he does to heal this sickness in your heart here's what he does he takes our defilement into himself and he becomes defiled in our place So he's stripped naked and ashamed. He's taken outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem where only the unclean were taken during a high feast. So the Son of God, in his soul, he feels the corruption of 10,000 adulterous hearts. He feels the sickness of the abuser who can't stop abusing. He feels the racism of the slave master, how it tears up his heart inside. He feels the the apparently righteous mother who harbors resentment at her spouse and it eats her away inside. He takes on the ugliness of the pastor who works hard to build up his own ego. All those secret sins that hide within us and defile us, he takes them on. And he stands as the great defiled one for whom the father can no more look at. His appearance, Isaiah said, was so corrupt that we could not look upon him. He is the picture of Dorian Gray. So let me ask you, do you have a painting that can bear the stains of your soul? Or do you have to bear it yourself? You can give it amidst all your efforts to keep the law. You can give all the stains and all the failings to the face of Jesus, and he will bear them in your place. Friends, this is what what the world merely calls psychosis. The Bible says is the state of your soul. And this is what the law could never do. This is what no hand-washing of food restrictions could bring about. The Son of God was sacrificed for your sanctification, for your cleansing. And therefore if you are in Christ you will never be defiled again. Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord God, that we would feel the cleansing water, Lord, and I feel that I pray that within each one of us a spring would be made where living water from you could bubble up and even cleanse those around us.